again, my name is Austin. Uh, I'm on the team here in, in Santa Monica, and I want to I want to start off uh, by saying this: This church is so so blessed to have a lead pastor like Trevor DeBenning. Uh, Trevor carries the bulk of the teaching load up here, and every single week that he teaches, if you're like me, you walk away encouraged, challenged, wanting to follow Jesus better, knowing what your next step is to follow Jesus better. Um, and so this month, since he carries just a bulk of the teaching load, he's kind of taking the month of July to, to rest and sabbatical and to read and to study. And his family's actually up at family camp this week with some other families uh, from the church. And so he stuck you guys with me. But even as he's away, you know, if Trevor's even made a smidgen of the impact in your life that he's made in mine, you know that your heart wants to follow Jesus more because of not just the teaching of Trevor, but also the example that he sets. And so even as he's away at family camp, can we just so show Trevor and his family some honor, just an online thank you um, for serving in such, such, such a faithful, faithful way. Trevor, this church loves you. We're thankful for you. Um, and thank you for sticking them with me. Um, well, hey, again, whether you've been at this church for 30 minutes or for 30 years, um, we're a church that wants to consistently teach and preach the gospel week in and week out. And so if you've been with us for some time, maybe since about January, you know that this past January we continued in our, our gospel of John, looking at the teachings and the works of Jesus. And as we trace the gospel of John, it actually led us to Lent, which is this 40-day march to the cross, which takes us to Holy Week, in which we really just set aside a week to really deeply reflect upon the passion of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And now that we're on the other side of Easter, we're looking at, at some of the writings of the early apostles and how they were encouraging the church in light of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and, the, and the, the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so for the past few weeks, we've been in the epistle of James. James being one of the first disciples of Jesus, an apostle in the early church, and even a, a brother of Jesus. And in our book today, in James, he makes it very clear at the outset why he's writing this epistle, why he's writing this letter. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered among the nations. In other words, the, the Jewish nation has been scattered all over the globe, and he's writing to encourage them in their new cultures and their new context and the new cities and the new countries in which they are residing. And most notably, as James is writing to these, these scattered congregations all over Asia Minor, he's making it a point over and over and over again that he wants these congregations to not just be hearers of the word, not just be readers of the text, not just be people that consume teaching, but to be people that put it into action, to be people that apply it to their life. In other words, don't just be hearers of the word, but do what it says. And so just a, a brief recap on where we've been in the book of James. In James 1, James makes the case to the congregations in a, just a very plain form that he wants them, again, not just to hear the word, but to do what it says. 
in James chapter 2, he talks a little bit about how this doing of the word plays out. About how these congregations ought not to be congregations that come to church just to hear teaching and at the same time show favoritism. But no, don't just hear the teaching. Be people that rid yourselves of favoritism. Treat the rich and the poor in your congregations alike. And in James 3, James is going to make the case again in this idea of hearing the word versus doing the word. He's going to make a case, hey, don't rush to be a teacher of the word first. Kind of focus on your own life. Focus on your own speech. Focus on your interior world before you rush to teach in the congregation in which you reside. And so... This morning we'll be in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles with you, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, verses 1 through 2 is going to show us this. And these are the three points we're going to look at over the course of the morning. First is James is going to encourage us to tame our tongue before we rush to teach other people. The second thing he's going to invite the congregations to do is to tame their tongues so that they might actually stay out of trouble. And the third thing he will encourage the congregations to do is tame their tongue so that they can stay true to their type. Again, tame your tongue before you teach to stay out of trouble and to stay true to your type. But before we get started, I actually want to start with this. Um, I grew up in an environment in Oklahoma, in my local school, in which it was a bit of the philosophy that the best way to learn something is to actually teach something. The best way to get it into you is to get it through you. And so I remember being in my fifth grade math class, and I'd been through several years of school, so I kind of knew the routine at this point. And I was in one of my math classes, and it was one of the first weeks of school, and you know, I really wanted to get off on the right foot with my teacher, and I really wanted to prove to my classmates that I was going to be an asset in this class. And so the teacher kind of gave us the opportunity at the beginning of one of the classrooms, hey, who would like to come up and teach this math lesson? And because I was in a hurry to make a good impression with my teacher, to make a good impression with my peers, I raised my hand so excited to make it to the chalkboard first. And so my teacher called me up there and said, okay, Austin, here's the chalkboard. Why don't you go ahead and, and teach this lesson? So I, I grabbed the chalkboard and then just this gloomy, daunting feeling dawned on me that I had rushed to the chalkboard without actually having studied the lesson. I had rushed the chalkboard and didn't actually do the homework. And so I prompted my teacher, hey, just a quick reminder, can you remind me kind of how this starts? Yeah, you know, 10 times 10 divided by 2. And so I start kind of writing it up there. And it's, it's this order of operations problem. And then I say, hey, I could, I could use just an, a, another nudge. Can you give me another nudge on what the next step is? Then I think I can take it from there. And step after step after step, the teacher quickly realized, Austin has no idea what he's doing up here. So I said, Austin, why don't we try this again another time? She took the chalk back. I sat down just completely deflated that I had rushed to the chalkboard without actually having done the internal work of learning how to do this particular order of operation myself. 
When we get to James chapter 3, verse 1, a, a similar thing is kind of happening. To set the stage a bit, uh, James is hearing news that in these congregations scattered all over Asia Minor, uh, that teachers in the area are beginning to be held in quite high esteem. You could imagine it a bit like the paparazzi in Los Angeles. One person actually writes at a point in the the first century that a a couple of students were following a a high priest. And as they were following the high priest down the road, on the other side, two scribes began to walk, which were people that would would write and study the scriptures. And they were held in, in more high esteem than this particular priest. So they stopped following this priest and they started following the scribe. In other words, whoever was most popular in the moment, people began to follow. And as there began to grow this sense of popularity among teachers, there began to be this rush within congregations to get to the podium, this rush within congregations to open the scriptures and to teach God's people. And James is quickly hearing that not all the teaching coming out is proper and right. In other words, these new believers in Christ need to study just a little bit more. And so verse 1 says this, James says, hey, hold up, folks. Not many of you should become teachers right now. Uh, The message translation translates it this way. Hey, y'all, stop rushing to teach. Slow down. Take your time. It reminds us of the passage earlier in chapter 1 where he says, Hey, be quick to listen to the scriptures and be slow to speak. James is saying, not many of you right now should become teachers. Don't rush, my fellow believers. Why? Because you know that we who teach, James is certainly putting him in the circle of people that ought to be teaching in this moment in time. We who teach will be judged more strictly. When James talks about a teacher being judged more strictly, he's He's really talking about it in two kinds of ways. One, there's going to be a moment in which he's going to be accountable to the Lord for how he has taught God's people the Holy Scripture. Certainly when people teach, they are judged more strictly. And secondly, they're teaching before a congregation. In other words, their teaching is going to be under the microscope of folks that have been following Christ for a long time and folks that are brand new to the congregation. And so James says, hey, not many of you should rush to teach. you got to know if you're teaching, it's not all rainbows and butterflies and unicorns. Teaching means there's there's more judgment on you from the Lord and from people. And so you guys that are holding teachers in such high esteem, he goes into verse 2. He says, nobody's perfect. He says, we all stumble. And not just in our teaching, we all stumble in many ways. It's a good thing to know that the people that teach here on Sunday mornings are not perfect. We're trying to grow and follow Jesus the same way that you guys are. And so he continues, he says, we all stumble in many ways. And anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. And who's perfect? Nobody. James is making this point that even the most skilled of teachers are going to stumble at moments. And so certainly our skilled teachers that stumble, if you haven't done your proper study, you ought to be slow to teach. Take a break in a sabbatical just to listen to the word, to sit under the word, to submit to the word. 
Because if anyone is never at fault in what they say, they're perfect and able to keep their whole body in check. Uh, The voice translation says it this way. If a person never, ever, ever speaks hurtful words, they have achieved perfection. I think we can all say there's not a lot of trust in any of us to never, ever, ever again say a hurtful word. Sometimes we say hurtful words out of spite and sometimes we say them unintentionally. But James says if you can begin to learn to tame your tongue before you teach, this is, this is going to be a good thing. You're going to find yourself shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. In fact, if you can tame your tongue, you can do anything. Your whole body you can tame and you can bridle. It reminds me of that movie, The Karate Kid. There's a, a kid that wants to learn karate, and so he goes and he seeks out the, the sensei. And as the sensei is you know, teaching him how to, how to do karate, he actually has him doing these you know, laborious tasks like washing a car, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, and, and painting the board up and down, up and down. And eventually, the kid just gets super frustrated because I don't want to wash your car. And I don't want to paint your fence. I, I want to learn karate. And essentially, the, his teacher says, man, if you can do this, if you can wax on and wax off, and if you can paint the board, you can take on anybody when it comes to actual karate. Because it translates. And if you follow the movie, he ends up in a karate tournament and, and winning with some of, these, some of these moves. In other words, the tongue is a small part of our body. But if we can tame our tongue, we can do anything, is what James says. So don't rush to teach. Don't rush to instruct. Not everybody should right now because no one is perfect and we're all working on this. James is looking for mature people in the faith to teach and to instruct. Um, It reminds me of this... uh, you know, there's a, there's a few kinds of people. Uh, you know, one, one of the clearest signs of someone who's not fully mature yet is a child. I love kids. I've served in Risen Junior for a few weeks recently. And one of the things you quickly learn about a child is their inability to tame their tongue. They're kind of talking all the time. They're talking in the check-in line. They're talking during the game. They're talking during the lesson. They're talking during the arts and crafts. And there's this this constant kind of, hey, shh, you don't have to talk all the time. We we can learn some silence here. And and it's a clear sign that this child is still maturing. In the same way, a great sign of immaturity amongst an adult is their inability to keep quiet. We've all seen people in that meeting in the workplace or being adults out of college, that one person that just doesn't know how to, how to be quiet at the right time, they, they kind of pipe off, if you will. And when someone hasn't quite learned to tame their tongue, it's this sign of immaturity. And James is saying, it's the mature. Those that have learned to tame their tongue that ought to be teaching in the congregation. This is why for the church, the spiritual discipline of silence has been so important. 
you know, monasteries all over the world are, are organizing around certain spiritual disciplines. Some are service and some are work. And there are even monasteries that, that gather around this idea of silence. They'll stay silent for six days straight and only allow themselves to speak on Sundays. Because they know as people that are maturing in Christ, the more they speak, the closer they are to actually sinning. This is what Proverbs chapter 10 verse 19 says. He says, when words are many, when someone's talking a lot, transgression is close at hand. But whoever restrains his lips, whoever tames his tongue is prudent and righteous. James wants to encourage the congregation before you rush to teaching, begin to work on taming your tongue. And so my question for you this morning is, where do you need to be slower to speak? In what space? Maybe it's on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's in community groups. At times in your workplace or in your home. Where do you need to not rush to teach and to speak? But just practice submitting to the scriptures. The first point James wants to make is tame your tongue before you begin to teach. He continues with this idea that not only ought we to tame our tongue before we teach, we ought to tame our tongue simply to stay out of trouble. James chapter 1, James chapter 3, verse 3, he continues. He says, you see, when we put the bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey, we can turn this massive, strong animal anywhere we want to. The bit is this idea of this metal piece that goes in the mouth behind the molars and the person on the horse can simply pull on the, the bit and it'll turn the head of the horse and it'll direct the horse anywhere it wants to go, even though that horse is much stronger than the rider. The bit is small, the horse is large, but it can still turn the entire animal. Verse four, he makes a similar example. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong, fierce winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. If you've been on a sailboat before, it's filled with these massive sails. And when it catches wind, it fills with wind and it begins to shoot forward. And if you've seen someone steering a sailboat, it's just with the easy turn of the wheel that the small rudder turns and the whole boat begins to turn. Even that boat is much bigger and much stronger than the pilot driving it. It's that small rudder that turns the entire ship. It's the small bit that turns the horse. The small rudder that turns the ship. And then he continues with this in verse 5. He says, likewise, the tongue is small. One of the smallest parts of the body, but the tongue makes great boasts. The tongue is capable of, of promoting oneself and speaking grandly of oneself all of the time. This small tongue can make great boasts. And consider what a great forest is set on fire by such a small spark. If you're like me, you've been in a place in which a small tongue has had a, said a few words 
and it's created a lot of drama. And it's affected a lot of people in the workplace. It's affected a lot of people in the home. It's affected a lot of people in the school. James wants to remind the congregations that the tongue is not a small thing. It's a very, very powerful thing. He continues in verse 6. The tongue also is a fire. Not just powerful enough to, to turn a life. He says it is a fire, a world of evil. This idea of evil is this idea of unrighteous judgments. Saying words and things that aren't true. It's, it's so easy to accidentally at times even say things that aren't true. Because we haven't quite studied enough. We don't have all the information. We haven't heard every side of the story. But the tongue can be quick to begin to say things that are not true. And when the tongue does this, watch this, it says that it corrupts or it defiles the entire body. There's something about us that when words that are untrue, unrighteous, false, and even evil make it onto our tongue, it begins to twist our view of the world, begins to twist our view of people, begins to twist our view of our coworkers. But he says it doesn't stop there. It not only corrupts the whole body, but it sets the whole course of one's life on fire. This idea of the whole course of one's life, it's this word genesis, meaning the beginnings, meaning even at times the idea of this family tree. It's this idea of family lineage. In other words, when we begin to speak falsely, when our tongue isn't tamed, not only does it corrupt us personally, it begins to infect our entire family. Those that have gone before us and those that will come after us and those that are walking alongside of us. He says, man, the source of all this, unrighteous, evil words coming from your tongue that will corrupt and defile you and mess with your entire family, man, that is straight from the fire of hell. In fact, he goes on. He says, watch this, verse 7. It says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and they have been tamed by mankind. He's alluding to the Genesis narrative in which humanity is given the, the call to go out to fill and subdue the earth. And he says, mankind is being really successful at a lot of this. The biggest animals, the smallest animals, the land animals, the sea animals, the air animals, all of it they're doing well. But verse 8, but no human has been able to tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's unruly, full of deadly poison infecting us and infecting the people around us. It reminds me, I was uh, picked up golf about a year or two ago. And uh, if you know the game of golf, I've got a mean slice. Man, I hit that ball, and that thing just takes off to the right. I said, man, i got to figure out how to fix this slice. Because, man, I would line up. I'd play baseball. I thought I'd be good at golf. Man, I'll take this swing, and instead of the shot going straight, it landing in the fairway where it's easy to find. My ball would always end up in the rough 
where it's hard to find and it's hard to hit and it's hard to save to get it to the green. And so I was taking a lesson. They said, hey, we're kind of watching your swing here. And you just, you really, you really got to keep your left arm straight. I said, are you sure I just don't need to go to the gym and get stronger? Because that, that sounds like an easier thing to do. He's like, no, it's, it's this really small part of your swing. It's, it's just your elbow, this hinge. If you can keep this straight, your odds of that ball going straight is, is going to be much easier. And so I spent a, you know, a lesson or two with him. And, and pretty soon, man, that elbow was straight. Straight as a string, and that ball was going straight down the fairway. I was like, man, sign me up for the PGA. This golf thing isn't that hard. And then I made it to my first round after that lesson. And it didn't take long for that straight elbow just to start to bend again. Because I hadn't fully trained my swing to make sure my elbow was always straight. So some people will even get those, uh, those floaty tubes that the kids wear in the, uh, the swimming pool. They'll blow those up and put them on their elbow so they can't, they can't bend their elbow while they swing. In other words, there's this idea within golf that you've got to constantly train one of the smallest pieces of your body, of your swing, to make sure your ball doesn't get into trouble. And the same is true for us. Our tongue takes constant training. It's one of the smallest parts of our body, but if we don't constantly watch over it, if we don't constantly train it, we will constantly find ourselves in the rough. We will constantly find ourselves in trouble with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents, with our bosses and our employees. James wants these congregations to know that taming the tongue isn't just about being prepared to teach. It's about staying out of trouble for you and your whole family. I love what Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says. The, the author's writing, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. But if you pop off, if you lose your temper, if you don't tame your tongue and you give a harsh word, it's just going to stir up anger in yourself and in the people around you. In other words, a tame tongue not only keeps us calm, it keeps the person we're talking to calm, and it can diffuse a situation quickly. What if that's true? What if it's the smallest part of our body that is consistently getting us in the most trouble on a regular basis? Constantly getting us in trouble with our spouse, with our boss, with our roommate. What if we begin to watch over our tongue just a little more closely, a little more diligently, we, begin, we could begin to steer our life in a new direction. Taming your tongue isn't just about not rushing to teach. Taming your tongue is about staying out of trouble. And this is the final thing. Taming the tongue will also keep you true to type. This is James 3, verse 9. He says, can you believe what you're about to hear? With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. We praise the one who has made everything, and we curse the ones that have been made in his likeness. Out of the same mouth, praises and cursings, my brothers and sisters, 
this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is saying, can you believe this? Can you believe this is actually happening in our congregations? That when the congregation is gathered on the weekends, they're singing praises to God and they're speaking so highly of him. And then as they leave and they go out to their workplaces and they go out into their homes, they begin to belittle people, to speak poorly of people to them or even behind their back. They begin to curse people. The text refers to this kind of person as double-minded. The kind of person you'll never really know what to expect because, man, I sat next to this person during church and they were amening and they were hallelujahing. And then I was with them on Tuesday in the marketplace and, man, I wouldn't want that tongue in the church and vice versa. We all know probably three kinds of people in our life. The first kinds of person is just, man, they are that positive person. They are the person you cannot wait to spend time with because you know when you leave, you're going to feel refreshed because they are so consistently positive. You can walk into that interaction with confidence. We also know people that are consistently without fail negative. You just know when you sit down with them, man, this is going to be a rough conversation because they kind of complain all the time. They're negative about everything. They're down on everybody. But you know what? I know what to expect. I can gear up. I can get mentally prepared. Not a horribly difficult person to interact with. The person that is probably the most difficult to interact with is the person that when you show up, your first thought is, I don't know what I'm about to get. Is this person going to be in a good mood or are they going to be in a bad mood because I can never tell? Is this person going to be life-giving in this moment or are they going to be down about everything I don't know? Is this person going to come down on me about something or are they going to be lifting other people up I don't know? It's not the positive people that are difficult to work with. It's not the negative people, consistently negative people that are difficult to interact with. It's the people that you feel like I'm walking on eggshells with this person. I don't quite know what to expect. When James is writing to these congregations, he's saying, don't be double-minded. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be fresh water on Sunday and salt water on Tuesday. Don't be positive on Monday and negative on Thursday. Don't be uplifting on Friday and tearing down on Saturday. Because if you're that kind of person, you're going to lose a lot of influence with people. You're going to lose a lot of authority with people. People are going to begin to approach you walking on eggshells, not quite knowing what to expect. James says, man, if you're going to be fresh water, be fresh water. If you're going to be a fig tree, produce figs. In other words, be consistent, be true to your type. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus on Sunday, be a disciple of Jesus on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well. If you're going to praise God on Sunday, praise him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday 
as well. If you're going to encourage and lift up on Sundays, encourage and lift up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well. Be consistent. Be true to type. Proverbs 16, verse 32. says, He who is slow to anger is even better than the mighty. Because the person that can rule his spirit, the person that can tame his tongue, the person that can be a thermostat and regulate their mood, that's the kind of person that can capture a city. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, says, An overseer, if they aspire to teach, he gives a whole list of things. I narrowed it down to just a few. He says, if somebody aspires to be an overseer, if somebody wants to teach, they've got to be temperate, cool-headed, mild-mannered, prudent, respectable. When they interact with people, gentle, peaceable. That's why as a disciple of Jesus, our mood and our temperament is so important. That's why sometimes in the morning when we wake up on the wrong side of the bed, the first thing we need to do is to rush to prayer to say, Lord, I'm feeling a little out of sorts, but I need you to come and to regulate my temperament and my mood so I can bless people today, so that I can speak highly of people today, so that I can encourage people today. Because if I go into this day without you, I'm going to lose my temper with the barista. I'm going to come down hard on my employee. I'm going to be tough on my spouse. Lord, would you soften me up? Make me gentle and peaceable today. So a question I have for you is, what is an area of your life outside of Sundays where you find it hard to be consistent? Where you find it hard to be true to your type? Where you, it's difficult that if you told somebody in a certain area of your life that you were a Christian, they'd be appalled. They'd be shocked. What is that area? What space do you need to invite the Lord into? So the three things that James wants to encourage the congregations to do is first, tame your tongue before you teach. Before you teach others, learn to bridle your tongue. Secondly, stay, tame your tongue to stay out of trouble because the tongue can release all kinds of vices, corrupt ourselves and our communities and the source of that is even from hell. And the third thing is, tame your tongue so you can be consistent, steady, true to type and, and watch the amounts of people that will come saying, I need help in this area, can you help me? Hey, how are you able to keep your cool in this situation? Can you help me? James wants to encourage us to do those three things. And now we want to we turn to communion. And I love this idea of taming the tongue. Because oftentimes when we think about Jesus, we just think about somebody who taught all the time, nonstop. And certainly he taught a lot. One of his first titles is teacher. His teachings are revered around the world. But in some of 
the toughest times for Jesus. Specifically in his passion, he's actually accused of not speaking, of being silent and quiet, having tamed his tongue in the most difficult moments when it would have made the most sense for him to lose his cool, to lose his temper, to not be true to his type. This is actually Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. This is in, and he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So Jesus did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit. Nor was any unrighteousness. Nor was any un true thing in his mouth. When we come to the table of the Lord, we remember that when we go through that sacred discipline of silence, when we begin to learn to tame the thing that James says is the most difficult thing to tame, which is our tongue, when we begin to submit to that process, we're actually submitting to a process that Jesus went through himself. Silent, not opening his mouth, no deceit or unrighteous thing there. And so when we come before the table, we remember that we are being invited to do something and to be shaped in such a way that Jesus already did it and we will look more like him. And that's a good thing. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured it out and said, this is my blood poured out for you. For as long as you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, and remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus was led like a lamb to slaughter like a sheep before its shears, punished for our transgressions and for our iniquities. And all along the way, not a single unrighteous, untrue, deceitful thing in his mouth.